It's time for the LaneCast with Montana's very own Talkin' Ag, Lane Nordland, your voice for agriculture. Hello and thanks for joining the Agriculture Conversation on the LaneCast Ag Podcast. The topic of today's show is the cattle markets once again. Our guest today is Professor Emeritus in the College of Agricultural Economics and Economics Department at Montana State University, Dr. Gary Brester. We're going to talk about what the cattle market, in particular the calf market, may look like this fall and some other issues, but we are mainly going to focus on questions that I've received on what the 50% mandated negotiated cash trade bill and legislation that was recently introduced into the U.S. Senate, what that does for the cattle industry, the pros and cons of it, and look at other aspects or alternatives that folks in the countryside are discussing in terms of the cattle markets. And while I'll encourage you to listen to the entire conversation right here on this podcast, if you'd like to watch the conversation via Zoom, it's on my Facebook page, Lane Nordland Ag Broadcaster. Don't go too far. We'll have that conversation with Dr. Gary Brester next. As a Montana Farm Bureau member, you have access to a lot of valuable benefits. Now you can have your savings on the go with the Farm Bureau Member Benefits app. The app will show you where you can use your membership discounts with Granger, Case IH, Choice Hotels, John Deere, and more. Plus, with the app, your membership card is on your phone for easy access. It's free. Download the app today. Simply go to the App Store or Google Play and download the Farm Bureau Benefits app. Montana Farm Bureau. We care for the country. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a conversation surrounding the cattle markets. There's a lot of talk in the countryside and a lot of talk on social media about what needs to be done to have fair cattle markets and addressing issues that are impacting all producers across the nation in the time of COVID-19 and before. And joining me today on Zoom is one of my favorite professors from college. Uh, he is a Professor Emeritus from Montana State University's Agriculture, Ag Economics, and Economics Department. Uh, it's quite a t- tongue twister there for me this morning, Dr. Brester, but Dr. Gary Brester uh, join, uh, joins us today from his quilting room, in fact. Uh, but uh, obviously it's raining and you can't be uh, further east of us planting sugar beets today. So uh, I'm glad we're taking a moment from uh, making a quilt in a day. But uh, uh, I mean, throwing a little humor onto our conversation today, Dr. Brester, but obviously a very situ- uh, serious situation out in the countryside. But, but how are things going here today and uh, how are things at home? Well, well good, for, good for me. This is in my wife's uh, quilting studio and, and she reminds me all the time that males are quilters as well. Uh, but uh, usually what I do is just build things for her and try to make her uh, quilt studio work for her. She has the camera for her meeting, so that's why I'm in this office instead of my own. Well, Dr. Brester, uh, I reached out to you because several producers from here in Montana and across the nation have reached out to me just asking about what this 50% mandated cash trade in the cattle markets, what that is. Obviously, just a little bit of background. Most people know know what this is uh, in the industry, but uh, uh, just this week, uh, Senator Chuck Grassley from Iowa and uh, Montana's U.S. Senator John Tester introduced a bill that would require U.S. meat processing facilities that slaughter over 125,000 head of cattle each year to purchase 50% of their weekly volume of beef slaughter on the open or spot market. That's the quick uh, Cliff Notes version of that. And a lot of questions that I'm getting, Dr. Brester, is... Can you just tell me more? Obviously, the U.S. Cattlemen's Association was advocating for uh, 30% early on in in talks with uh, legislators. Um, uh, RCAF USA supports the 50% uh, that that I just talked about. Both of these groups are applauding um, the introduction of this legislation. But a lot of folks that aren't in feeder country sometimes have questions about uh, cash trade and formulas in general. But I'm just going to list off a few of these, and we don't have to address any of these right now. But just questions that I've received on Facebook and uh, uh, Instagram is, how does this impact me as a cow-calf producer? Uh, is it right away? Is it lengthy? Um, another one that I, a few of these, um, I've kind of condensed a few questions. I, I don't like government sticking their nose in my business, but the packers need to be broke. Is 50% enough or will this do anything at all? 
And uh, another one is, will this solve anything or is this just politicians trying to get reelected? Uh, and again, uh, most of these have the same thing is what does this mean? So, so Dr. Brester, obviously, when we look at this, it's a tough time in the countryside and, and, and folks, whether it's uh, right now during COVID-19 or before, they're very concerned. They're frustrated. There's a lot of anxiety in the countryside because their livelihoods are dependent on this. I understand the frustration. But could you just talk more about just the process, uh, even COVID-19 aside, how we've got to this point and how things are looking? Sure. And, and Lane, let me also say thank you for, for the invitation to visit with you, yes, and, thank you. and your listeners. It's always an, I always appreciate the opportunity. Let, let me just start off with, with the basics for those that aren't quite as up to speed, maybe, as, as others in the industry. Uh, uh, we generally think about uh, markets uh, in terms of a buyer or seller getting together and agreeing on a price for something. Now, we don't do that with everything. Uh, uh, when you go to the supermarket, there's a price there. You generally accept that price or, or choose not to purchase that item. Um, but, but with car sales, with home sales, with land purchases, we often have a negotiation involved. Now, historically in the cattle industry, almost all cattle were traded one-on-one -on -one or in an auction type setting. Cow-calf producers would take their animals to auctions and they would be buyers there to buy them. And on the fed cattle side, uh, out, of a, out of a packing, out of a, a feedlot, uh, packers and, and feedlot operators would get together either visually or over the phone or in person and they would negotiate on a price for these animals. Now, you have to remember the, the, the complexity of this. For cow-calf producers, um, uh, moving calves around is expensive. And so we've gone to more and more video auction and contracting and things like that. But there's still a lot of one-on-one -on -one negotiation. We call that a cash negotiated price. In the, in the cattle industry, you have to remember, we're slaughtering about 25 million head of cattle a year in this country. And, and the process of, of getting those animals moved from, from feedlots to packing plants uh, is a large logistical problem. And trying to, to have negotiations on every one of these animals or every pen, let, let's, really it's on pens, uh, it's costly. It takes people and people are expensive. So what, is, what has evolved is about, uh, right now, something maybe less than 20% of those 25 million had are actually negotiated over. That is a packer, either in person, their representatives there are buying cattle from the feedlot or through videos like we're doing here or internet or telephone or something. But about less than 20% of those animals are actually traded that way. Now, why that's important is that the other 80% are generally then traded on a formula based off of those negotiated prices. So we have a kind of a small group of, of cattle, it's small, it's still a big number, but in percentage terms, that, that sort of determines the base price for any given week. And then the following week, the other 80%, let's say, of animals are traded and, and, and the prices are determined starting with that base and then a variety of quality and, and cutability and other factors that, that go into those formulas. Um, for the cow-calf producer, the concern is, and then of course for the feedlot producer, the concern is what happens if this process results in a base price that's lower than what supply and demand fundamentals would suggest, what, a, what the true market price should be. And that affects the cow-calf producer because if live cattle prices are lower, uh, you can't pay as much for the, for the feeder calf that's, that's coming into those lots. So, so that's the, the basic setup right now. And, and whenever we have low cattle prices in particular, um, th there's always a concern. We, we start looking for reasons for those low prices. And, and that's not unhealthy. And, and as you mentioned, we've lost 30, 35% of the live cattle and the, in the, in the feeder cattle calf price since COVID. So we were right on sort of the long-term inflation adjusted price trend on live cattle and on feeder cattle prior to uh, February, you know, prior to COVID, and now we've lost a lot. So maybe this is a reasonable time to ask the question, is this process a reasonable one for establishing fed cattle prices? So Dr. Brasser, as we look at, uh, at the current situation and the current problems that we're, we're facing, um, we really, could you even maybe explain, expand more about even formulas in general or just what, uh, what folks should be looking at on what these bills could do to the formulas and, and positive, negative, just what is your 
take yeah. on it. Well, the the the, uh, the the proposals that are that are out there, and there are several. But base the basic idea is is that maybe we need to find a way to have more of the transactions that occur that develop that base. Maybe we need a larger volume, a larger percentage of cattle being traded uh, that would that would help us establish that base. The, the concept being, if we only have, I'm just using the number, 10 percent of the cattle that are being traded negotiated, perhaps there are ways, and, and those prices are, are mandatory price reported so that we know what the base is. The problem is, is that not all the not all those things get tr get reported because of regionalization and and protecting the identity of the people involved because of uh, their their own uh, personal uh, accounting and, and and price analysis sorts of things. So so the the issue is if you've got a problem of being concerned about not having enough cattle traded in the manner that you think would be best that is cash negotiated, perhaps we should expand and make it mandatory that more cattle be traded through this traditional uh, negotiation uh, process. And by the way, uh, we want the right base for these formulas. I mean, uh, but the question, the problem is economics, we never know exactly what right is. We, 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 so, so for example, think about this, is 10% too, too few? Well, when we try to establish whether or not uh, a certain candidate, a presidential candidate is going to win an election, the pollsters do far less than 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 uh, uh, survey 10% of the voting population, and the reason they can get by with that is that it's a random sample, and and the question becomes: Is this small amount we're looking at really a random sample of the entire market? And and we don't know that, so it seems reasonable, you know, to to say, well, let's just expand the sample, let's just have more people. And as you mentioned, there's been proposals for saying that every packer that it basically the large packers, those with multi-plants and only in the beef industry would have to negotiate some bigger percentage, mandatory, and then report those prices so we have a, a better feel for what the base should be. And, and so the proposals have been, maybe we should mandate that 30% of these animals be negotiated as opposed to formula price. And, and the most recent uh, Senate uh, uh, proposal bill uh, uh, that, that they'll be debating is maybe we should make it 50%. So uh, uh, is more information preferred to less? Yeah, in general, I mean, uh, that makes sense. I, I think, Lane, that sort of the follow-up question is, is that, and you mentioned this on some of your, I, I don't do social media, so, so, but you mentioned that people are concerned about uh, other things. Whenever we um, intervene, many times for good reasons, in markets where there's voluntary transactions going on, we very often underestimate the additional costs we put into a system uh, and the other unintended consequences that can happen. And, uh, and those costs matter. The, the more costs you have between the genet beef genetics development and consumer uh, consumption of beef product, the more costs you put in there, the the, the 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 less efficient the system becomes and, and it does hurt cow calf producers as well. So the, the, the question here is, uh, what are the costs of requiring people to do certain things a certain way versus the potential benefits of that sort of action? And, and I can see both benefits and costs. The question is which are larger and I, I just don't know. So I think as we look at the, you brought up the, the Senate bill, what, what are some of the pros and cons that you see with that bill? Um, obviously, I think it's great that elected officials are listening to people in the countryside. And uh, so, so with that, what are some pros and cons that you see with this? And, uh, and obviously, it has to be debated, and, and, and uh, it might yeah. go somewhere, it might not go somewhere. But well, you know, as the, it is, what is it? What, yeah, Lane, and that's, that's really the critical issue here. I mean, certainly the pros is that if we don't have a random sample to establish the base from a very small percentage, so if 10% is not a random sample, or if some of those, consider this, suppose only the lowest prices out of those negotiations are price reported, mandatory price reported, so that our base is actually 
pushed down. Or if it were only the feedlots reporting the prices, they would want to report their highest uh, uh, prices that they have done, their highest 10%, if, if you will. So, so having a broader sample um, adds value. Uh, if, we, if we had 50% of these animals uh, uh, being reported and that uses the base, we're probably closer to true supply and demand determination. The, the cons, though, are um, people aren't doing that now. So it must be costly to invest, and, and costly not just for the packers, but also costly for the feedlot operators to do these negotiations one-on-one um, uh, -on -one or, or, or over the phone or over the internet, but this involves people and, and people are, as I said, are very expensive. So uh, w whenever you intervene, there are these costs and there's unintended consequences. Uh, we mentioned before we came on the air, we accept this all the time. We, we intervene in how fast you can drive through a school zone. We, we, we're intervening and we're adding costs. We're slowing people down. It takes longer to get somewhere. But we also realize there's benefits for doing such things in terms of children's safety. And so, so the, it, it, this is like any other decision trade-off we have uh, in economics. And, and it's, it's that hard issue of, is it worth it? Are, are adding these kind of costs to the system valuable enough in order to sort of accept those costs and, and, keep, and keep the industry healthy? Um, and and I, I don't I don't know the answer to that question. I, I think there's a real researchable topic in there, and I, I think there's uh, there's a, there's other alternatives as well. So as we look at maybe the, some of those alternatives, uh, you shared more of the pros on that, but could you maybe look at maybe some more of the cons, or, or maybe even some of those alternatives as well? Yeah, you know, um, one of the things that that we want is we want a, a true picture of supply and demand conditions when we establish these prices. Now that doesn't mean we're always gonna have high prices. It means that the prices are reflecting the underlying market conditions at the time. And that's important because high prices tell us we need more of that product. Low prices tell us we want less. And so in a market, prices are very, very important. Um, but the establishment of those prices in a big economy like ours is certainly uh, uh, difficult and we don't know what the truth is. I. I off the top of my head, something I've been thinking about is maybe we need, instead of more mandatory negotiations, maybe we need a, a structure whereby we can get closer to uh, the, the truer value of what supply and demand fundamentals are. And, and one thought would be, and I haven't done the research, I don't know if it's even feasible, but get, you know, use this as an example. Suppose that a formula start being based not on, and again, I'm not saying mandated, but an, an alternative would be uh, maybe we should be using something like the Fed cattle futures markets as our base, the, the nearby delivery, let's say. And, and the reason for that is, is that there's hundreds of people, thousands that are involved in the futures market. They're integrating information by the minute. If we were online now, the quotes and we pay for it, the quotes would be turning over every minute as traders who are trying to transfer risk from those who don't want it to those who do want it. They're incorporating information all the time about what markets are doing. Um, and, 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 there's, and, and the, the good part here is not just packers and it's not just cattle feeders. It's, it's, it's lots of people who are uh, in the markets for a whole variety of reasons. But when you have thousands of people uh, using information and putting real money in the game, uh, we may, perhaps that's a more accurate reflection of, of supply and demand conditions uh, in the uh, in the U.S. and and I suspect that uh, if we could do some research on this and, and and find out whether or not this is a better proxy, I think both packers and feedlots would say, hey, you know, we've got a number out there, and uh, it doesn't cost us anything to use it. We, you and I can get the quotes uh, ten minute delayed uh, constantly. Um, you know, maybe something like that would incorporate more information in in price determination. It's a thought. I, I can't say that this that this would work at all perfectly or at all, but it's just something that that a few of us uh, have been thinking as this topic has has arisen. Well, I know some folks that'll be here watching this or listening to this will be like, well, the futures markets are broke, so they might just uh, you know poo-poo that idea. I I I, yeah. I I guess what what are the futures markets? I mean, as I mean, we look back a few years where mm -hmm. there was an investigation into the CME, 
into uh, impacts that it may possibly could have had on yeah. the markets. Um, could you just maybe even dive into how the futures market could be improved upon or how we can use that as a risk management tool as well? Then we'll, again, we're right. getting off into the weeds, but I, I know people are going to be thinking these exact same yeah. thoughts. Well, well, one of the things about, about uh, futures markets is that they are pretty darn well regulated. I mean, um, this is something that, that has uh, happened over time. Uh, and occasionally we get into some what they call a convergence problems and some other things. But the real problem in, in futures markets is when there's not enough liquidity, when there's not enough people trading in them. So, you know, as long as we have enough liquidity in those markets, they tend to function pretty well. In fact, if you take, a, and I've done this many times, the, all of the academic research shows that if you want to forecast a price in the future, there's a number of ways you can do it. You can use a Ouija board. You can ask a college professor, which is even worse than the Ouija board, in my estimation. Um, you can buy uh, professional advice on this. Um, you can look at government uh, uh, predictions and all those kinds of things. But in reality, the futures markets, um, uh, year in and year out, do a better job of forecasting a price in the future than certainly a college professor is going to do. Um, and and, and, and or any other kinds of things that are used. So consequently, that's why um, pros and cons aside, lots of, uh, I think, misinformation about futures markets, but, but in general, they work pretty well as a price forecasting tool. Um, so I, 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 is there perfection in the world? No, not in my house, not, not behind me, not in the table I built here. There's imperfections in that as well. But, uh, but it's, it's a thought. It's, a, it's another way of thinking about the problem. Um, I, I'm always somewhat um, hesitant when we, as some people in social media has told you, that when we mandate things be done. Um, uh, lots of times there's good reasons for that. Uh, but, but one of the problems is, is, that, is that markets and economies are very complex. Um, and as a result, we tend to underestimate the impacts of what seems to be kind of small interventions, if you will, in a market. When we start telling people how to do things, um, we underestimate the overall impacts of that. There can be plenty of benefits to, I'm not, you know, I'm not, for your listeners out there, I'm not saying that this is a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying that we tend to uh, underestimate the unintended consequences of intervening in voluntary exchanges between people. Um, so, so I, I always am a little hesitant to say that will fix the problem. It could fix part of the problem and it may create others. Do you have any alternatives that you and your colleagues across the nation maybe have discussed uh, uh, other alternatives to, ma to a mandated uh, cash trade or, or, it, or is it yeah. just uh, still kind of uh, really trying to look at what this actually is or, or what it could do? You know, I, I don't think uh, any of us, uh, any of the people I've talked to um, know the answer. Um, uh, if we did, I think, you know, we'd be trumpeting it and trying to show the results. Uh, like most things, there's pros and cons to everything we decide to do. Um, would it be, uh, would we be more comfortable, would I be more comfortable with more negotiated transactions? Of course. Um, if nothing else, as an economist, I have more data. I, it's mandatory, you know, much of it's mandatory price reported. I get to use the data. Yeah, I, 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 but, but I don't incur the costs. Of, of those transactions. So it's pretty easy for someone who doesn't incur the costs to like the benefits that you get from it. Um, so I, I just, you know, my, I think all of us are thinking, those of us that I visit with are thinking, um, uh, what, are the, what are the costs of doing this? And, and why, you ask yourself, why have we gravitated towards this lane, I'm gonna say less than 20% or sometimes it's more than 20%, less than it's 20, sometimes less than 20% on these negotiated transactions. But why have we evolved there? We forget that, you know, that there's reasons for this. Um, and uh, uh, many of us who aren't in, directly in the industry probably don't see those reasons, but it's probably that this is a lower cost way of acquiring animals uh, by packing plants. I mean, you have to remember uh, a, a major packing plant needs 5,000 head of cattle a day at the gate. Um, Monday morning, <laughs> after a weekend, they have to have that number of animals there. And acquiring that number of animals is an expensive process that they would like to 
reduce the costs on because that increases their profitability. That's fine. We want packers to make money. I, it, 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 we want the truck drivers to make money. We want the feedlots to make money. If they don't, then people don't want our calves. Uh, you know, we need profitability in the industry. And you mentioned earlier, you know, packer profitability, which goes up and goes down. But the reality is there's just very little evidence to suggest that packers are making this exceedingly high uh, uh, large profits, uh, mostly because if you look at the publicly traded companies, their stock prices return and their dividend returns are very similar to other aspects of the agricultural food processing industry. It, it, it just doesn't appear like over the long haul, huge profits are, are being made consistently. Mm -hmm. um, uh, now cattle prices are very low. Meat prices are trying to rebound a little bit as we have supply and demand adjustments occurring. Uh, packers may be making uh, dollars now. I don't know, but uh, there's times when when the meat that a packer takes from an animal and you sell that meat, that's what they do. There's plenty of times when that's about equal to what they paid for the animal. So you pay $1,500 or $2,000 for an animal, and that's about what you get for the meat sales. It was, but, but you have all the costs involved in between there, and that all's in, in those times, that's all coming from the hides and the, and the edible offal and the inedible offal and the stuff that I don't want to ever have to deal with um, uh, in, at this stage of my life. Um, I, I, I just, there just isn't enough consistent evidence of, of a problem to me as an economist when I look over the long haul. And there'll be ups and downs like there are in the cow-calf business and like there are in the feedlot business as well. Well, obviously, uh, there's been a big push for USDA to expand its investigation into possible market manipulation from the Holcomb plant fire in Kansas last year. And then, of course, uh, the uptick that we've seen due to COVID-19. And just looking at this week's like uh, May 11th, those choice cuts were at 468. You know, it's up 260 plus dollars. And uh, that, that concerns people. Um, sure. you know, obviously, it, it's concerning as a, as a young guy that has to talk for a living sure. to that still has a cow note to pay. <laughs> um, yeah, no, uh, and, and it should be concerning. And, you know, I mean, one of the one of the things we've seen in the US economy in the last uh, 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 since World War Two, uh, actually, it happened a lot more prior to World War One. But we have seen uh, uh, sectors of the economy become um, primarily uh, uh, serviced by uh, three or four large companies. And, and this happens in fertilizer manufacturing, grain transportation, elevation, uh, uh, meat packing, uh, 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 seed uh, uh, production, chemical production, all these sorts of things. So over time, whenever you have a smaller group of, uh, of, of, in, uh, of companies, that, that have the majority of the market, you know, our first reaction would be we should be concerned. And, and I, I think we should make sure we, we, we are vigilant, you know, vigilant on, on trying to see if there is the potential for market manipulation. Um, on the other hand, uh, most of this we have found uh, is really a result of scale economies that, that because I'm that size, I don't have, uh, uh, we don't have 50 HR departments in these, you know, in these companies, we have four. The accounting systems, all of the legal systems, all of these things have a quite a bit of scale economies in them. So, and we see this in banking and 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 food processing and all sorts of things. Uh, I, I think that the, the bigger issue then becomes: um, is there potential, and do we see any uh, market manipulation that occurs? Let me give you a quick example. If you think about the cola industry, um, uh, two firms dominate: Coke's the dominant uh, firm, and Pepsi's the, the second firm, and the rest are all you know a small percentage of the market. Yet we seldom have any problem or think that Coke and Pepsi uh, uh, are in cahoots with each other and they're manipulating the market, even though there's only two firms and they pretty much dominate it. And what you tend to find is, just like we've seen with the OPEC oil cartel recently, um, well, not recent, since, since, about 19, since about 1990, it's very difficult for firms to collude with one another in order to uh, uh, raise prices or, or lower their input cost, whichever it might be. You know, o OPEC is struggling to do it. Why? Well, because cartels are hard to, are, are hard to keep together. There's so much incentive to uh, say, yes, I'll do that, and then go ahead and not do it. Uh, uh, cheating within these cartels are, are, is common. 
And so, you know, it's very difficult for three or four large firms to try to manipulate. And as you noted, um, it's illegal. And, and there are real, you know, you, you, the Department of Justice finds this sort of thing. Uh, a few years ago, one of the main executives, Dwayne Andreas' son, went to jail. Uh, uh, it's a country club jail, I know, but I still wouldn't want to be there unless there's a golf course for me. Um, uh, for, for the lysine market and the manipulation that went on with a few large firms in that. So the, the costs of being caught are, are very high. Um, and we need to be vigilant. We need to do just what you're talking about. We do need to make sure that people are behaving uh, like in a, in a manner, given that there's only a, you know a handful of the largest firms that that have most of the market share. Um, uh, we we want to make sure the markets function well. And and uh, so I I have no problem with uh, uh, or I sort of I applaud actually some watchdog work on on these sorts of things. I do want to caution us, we tend to think that the obvious answer is always the right answer. Lane, you were in my classes, you realize that too. Sometimes in economics, the obvious answer isn't the right answer. I'm just saying. You know. So uh, uh, th those are the, those are the, the, the issues. And it is, uh, it's not a simple issue uh, ever. Um, at least it isn't for me, but I might not be smart enough. I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, uh, Dr. Brester, obviously, we, we, we've really been talking about the mandated uh, negotiated cash trade here. Yeah. Uh, but folks uh, up here, we're cow-calf producers in yeah. Montana. And obviously, we're seeing a big push for trying to you know ease regulations so we could have more processing facilities or upgrade, which, like I always say, there's nothing more American than having a butcher shop on Main Street. Sure. Um, and it's just, it's more opportunities for producers. We're all yeah. going to agree on that. But a big incentive uh, for, for many producers are, is the international market and the premiums that are paid for the beef that we raise here in Montana, that high quality protein. Um, and, and the big question is, is I know you're getting asked this, is what is the price of my calves going to be worth as we move into the, the video season and, and yeah. in the fall? Um, but and obviously things things are not bright right now for, for in a lot of uh, producers' minds and but as we look at the situation internationally, we have bird flu in China, we have African swine fever rampant across Asia. Uh, your best educated guess: What are we looking at? What measures should producers be thinking about right now? Well, uh, Elaine, you know, I'm uh, a couple of things you mentioned. First of all, I just had a had an animal um, cut for our home consumption uh, um, from from our farm, and uh, uh, or near our farm. And uh, uh, when I had that done in a small plant, uh, uh, the cost of kill cut. Now I also had it wrapped, so it's not a co direct comparison. But if you think about what it costs a, a major plant to 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 slaughter an animal. The number is something like $500 a head. That, that's the best I can get. It's rough. But I know what I paid to have it done by a small plant. And it wasn't quite twice that, but it's almost twice that. So that's the scale component as you're, as you're talking about. Why can't we do more at Montana? Well, the, the problem is, is volume. And you mentioned it. If you're going to access a foreign market, you don't send over a tray of beef. You send over a container or two or six. And so, uh, and people don't want every aspect of the animal. They want a container of, of rib steaks or they want a container of tenderloins and you have to have a lot of animals to do that. So, so that's one aspect of, of, of thinking about more involvement by other uh, uh, entities uh, uh, and, and regulation can have an impact on that. But the reality of it is, is volume matters so much, especially what you do with the drop with the edible offal and the inedible offal. But, that sort of thing. Now, in terms of cattle prices, you know, if we start the year, if we look at January, um, producers, the futures market was telling us that for a you know, 650 weight steer calf, uh, October, November-ish, that sort of thing, a person could have probably locked in on the futures market something very close to uh, $1.65. Uh, uh, and now, you know, if you look at the futures market now, uh, if you wanted to lock something in, you're probably at $1.40. Or maybe a dollar forty-five, but but we've seen some recovery the last few weeks, and that's what you'd expect. The fundamentals haven't changed, with the exception of the COVID, and the fact that we're not driving around and and flying around and traveling. That really hurts the beef industry. Um, the beef industry is the center cut plate 
People spend more on beef, even though they consume less beef per capita, they spend more on beef than they do on pork and poultry. A lot of that involves travel uh, and entertainment. And so when we slow that whole process down and don't travel, that high-end beef consumption really gets hurt. And it, and it hurts our overseas markets as well if people are concerned about travel. Ports require human beings to move things and all those sorts of problems. So, so if, let's say fundamentally, COVID disappeared tomorrow and we all are back to normal, and I'm not doing this interview in my quilt studio, but we're doing it at the stock growers meeting, right? Um, if everything's back to normal right now, there's absolutely no reason not to be back at those prices that we had in January. I mean, th 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 this is purely both a demand shock and higher costs of, of processing now, given that we have plants that are closed, given that there's all these other things that are being done to protect workers in those plants. So, so fundamentally, there's no reason why we can't be back to a uh, $1.65 calf in the fall, other than this uh, flu uh, virus that has impacted everybody. And uh, uh, you, know, I, you are right. The angst that this creates is huge uh, for, for producers of both crops and uh, which have been harmed too, and especially of livestock. And you know, I, I think uh, you know, it points out to Lane the things that we taught in class or the things I teach out in the state, uh, at stock growers meetings, at, at all sorts of different events, uh, about price risk management, of, about you know, thinking about spending the time to say, can I manage, can I handle the, the potential for a lower price? And a lot of times we think of a lower price as maybe 10% lower. You know, if we had a 10% calf loss in a, in, a, in a year, that would be devastating. Producers, producers do everything they can to avoid the loss of calves, and 10% would be a disaster. Yet, yet you have the same impact of a 10% loss in price. We need to spend as much time and effort trying to figure out a way to manage price risk, uh, just as much as we spend trying to manage uh, death loss. Uh, during calving season and beyond. And so uh, I, I think if, if there's a lesson out of this, uh, producers you know, are saying, you know, uh, at least for some of my crop, crop or livestock, um, I, I need to be a bit more vigilant maybe in trying to think about price risk management down the road. You know, of course the downside is if you're gonna cut off the lower end of the price of something, you're probably gonna cut off the high end too. And uh, 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 those are the trade-offs people have to make. And, and that doesn't mean everybody needs to manage price risk. It doesn't mean you have to manage price risk on everything. Um, but but it, it is a, a bit of a wake-up call. And all we can hope is that these markets recover as we move forward for a whole host of reasons, for human health reasons, for mental health reasons, and then for financial reasons for producers as well. It, 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 we just, you know, we, we need this thing under control, and I don't know how to do that, Lane. I'm sure you do, but I, I don't. Uh, and, and, but when that happens, we'll be back to where uh, we should be, um, or, or, or where those fundamentals would have taken us in the absence of this. Will that happen this fall? I hope so. I mean, for, for everybody's sake. Um, you've got little kids at home, right? No, not yet. Not yet. Okay. Uh, well, for all those people that are homeschooling right now, I know they're hoping to. Yeah, we lucked out. Yeah, hopefully missing that a little bit here, having to homeschool. But, uh, uh, Dr. Brester, I, I, I uh, did a podcast a, a few weeks ago, probably a month ago now. Uh, uh, quarantines kind of went by pretty fast here with uh, Dr. Anton Beckerman about mm -hmm. the impact that the 2008 recession had on uh, beef, the uh, beef prices and, of course, yeah. just uh, beef consumption. And, and that is one thing that I'm going to continue to beat the drum on is Obviously, yes, we've had these stimulus checks that have been sent out. We've had paycheck protection. But I think folks really need to look at that, how that recession impacted beef consumption because it is scary. You know, it took, what, seven, eight years for that fully to come back to pre-2008 beef consumption levels. I just, I think of that as a risk management strategy looking like how do we look at our finances right now if this continues to go on? You know, um, uh, that, that's right, and it, it highlights the impact that lower incomes have on beef consumption, and it, co it comes in a couple of ways. Lower incomes means less beef and, and lower quality beef, uh, lower cuts, you know, uh, middle meats being bought at stores rather than high end. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is this travel issue. When we have, when we have income, people travel a lot. So uh, Dr. Beckham is exactly right. 
um, when we had that recession, you could think of this as a recession, right? I mean, it's actually a contraction right now, uh, not generated by economics, of course, but by, but by the, the, the disease problems that we have right now. Um, uh, but but uh, beef, you know, beef, it, it's a, a uh, you know, it's it's that high-end product. So when things go well, you win big, right? I mean, it's 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 the home run hitter all the time in, in these industries, uh, uh, and uh, and it's also then uh, it's the swing and miss one as well. Why? Well, because it's more expensive. It, it just costs more. Uh, uh, per pound than uh, poultry or pork. And that's why it's really important as we circle back to our discussion as we started this, that we continue to have an industry that's competitive, as competitive as possible with, with, uh, with pork and poultry. We'll, we, we, they're different animals. It's different ways of raising them. We're never going to be able to beat them completely on price. But the more price competitive we can become, the more efficient we are, uh, the, the more competition and the better beef can compete with these other products. So, uh, uh, you know, income matters a lot uh, for the beef industry. I, I, I just, I, mean, I just got to believe that we, we haven't fundamentally, though, changed uh, what's going to happen down the road. Uh, when people move around, uh, you know, my, my gut feeling is, is, is there going to be a little bit of going crazy of people traveling and making up for lost vacations and, and uh, restaurants. But right now, the, the restaurant trade has, has been harmful. Uh, the lack of the restaurant trade has been harmful to, to the beef industry. Um, uh, yeah, meat will get consumed, but in different forms and different values. So um, we just all hopeful that, that things uh, uh, straighten out here down the road and uh, and that the and that the actions that have been taken uh, are are the actions that will help that. The problem is is that we just don't know what the right thing to do is. Uh, 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 hopefully, we're doing some of the right things. What What are your thoughts on? Obviously, we do have a bottleneck and a backlog of cattle right now with those uh, bigger uh, packing plants being backed up. Yeah. Uh, let's just say they get back to full capacity here with uh, health and safety measures in place in the next few weeks or few months. Obviously, quality and grading are a top concern uh, for cattle that may be on a different type of ration um, or we're holding those cattle, uh, cattle back just a little bit. How is that going to impact uh, the, the beef pricing and, and overall what consumers, or what may be coming in the feedlots here this fall? Well, at least initially, you know, we're going to have some heavy cattle uh, because cattle that can't go, that are ready and can't be processed is a real problem. You know, in the poultry industry, uh, and in some some in the hog industry, they're 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 just uh, destroying animals on the farm. In the case of poultry, in the case of hogs, some of them are being brought in simply killed and composted, uh, and rendered down because there, there isn't anybody to cut this meat up, and or, or it's too dangerous uh, right now for because of the the flu uh, uh, epidemic that is occurring. Um, this is very people oriented work. People are shoulder to shoulder in these plants. It's very hard work, folks. I mean, really hard work. Um, and, uh, as a result of that, uh, boy, I tell you what, we're going to, uh, you know, what do you do with cattle? I, I, you know, at some point they've, they've got to get to a plant and that's why the prices are so low on those cattle right now. Uh, you know, the, the, the packers just don't have any place to, to do anything with them and the prices reflect that low price. Um, so we will have a, you know, we'll have a pretty, you know, big heavy animals going through. Let's just hope we get the packing plants. And President Trump has, has said this is a, an essential industry, uh, the, the packing industry. So they're trying to do everything they can to, to get those animals moved through. Uh, but when an animal's ready, like you said, you can keep them around a while, you can put them on a maintenance ration, but that backs up the feed yards and, and, and it affects uh, uh, those cow-calf uh, producers in terms of calves that I either are directly ready for the lots this fall or, or will be backgrounded for a while and, and be ready next spring. Um, logistics, you know, when you have 25 million head moving through a system every year, these little, this hiccup in logistics is, is, again, something that has a lot more unintended consequences and costs than you and I would normally think about. You know, we, we just... You know, we do other things. You do other things. I do other things. Uh, but but the scale of these industries, I've been studying agricultural markets for 40 years, uh, and I, I still can't believe the scale. I, I just, the amount of, of food, uh, I spend time in the winters in California now, and I watch that that lettuce production and, and uh, uh, the, the, the vegetable production and the scale and the volume that goes through plants. Uh, 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 lettuce that is 
harvested one day, two days later is in New York, chilled, chopped, ready for consumption. Um, the scale and, and, and the logistics are so incredible. Um, so, but, but we do have a good system and, 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 and it will, you know, we'll, we'll recover um, uh, in terms of the logistical side of things. Uh, there's gonna be some real, uh, real harmful uh, uh, economic activity though for the next few months. And, and uh, what do we do? I, I don't know what we do about it. It's not something that can just simply be fixed by legislative action. We, we have to you know, uh, get rid of this problem. That's what we have to do. <laughs> I, I think it's going to be interesting watching these video auctions as we kick off here in the spring and move uh, through the summer and fall just because how much open space is going to be in these feedlots. Well, I mean, that's pretty easy here early on to, 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 to assume. Uh, but moving on into the fall, just the number of, of cattle that will be uh, heading down the road. And we are, hey, get some good news. We are resolving these hours of service rules finally yeah. <laughs> in electronic yeah. logging yeah. devices. When uh, it, you're, you're, you're always a glass half full sort of guy, Lane. Oh, uh, you got to be. But <laughs> but uh, I, I'd say that is probably the number one thing on, on, on producers' minds right now is just – how am I going to market my, my calves here this year? Yeah. And, uh, and I, I, I it, it is scary. And I, yeah. I wish I had the solution to tell them really. Well, I mean, but, but doesn't it, isn't it comforting to know for you and I that there are people who are willing to take these risks, entrepreneurs that do this for a living. I, I say this in almost every one of my talks. Uh, these people have so much invested in, in an animal that can die at any time uh, in a market that, that we have, Nobody, this is anybody's fault, that as far as I know. I mean, it just, you know, uh, uh, I, I, I find it remarkable that, that agricultural producers, farmers and ranchers, uh, take these kinds of risks and sleep at night, because I, I, I certainly couldn't, but we should be uh, really thankful that we have a system that helps reward these people, um, uh, you know, for good management and when things go well, and, and hopefully we, we have a system in place to, to help out when things like this, uh, like this happen, and we've seen some of that occurring, but we're very lucky to live in a place where, where we let entrepreneurs take care of this for us uh, instead of, uh, uh oh, this would sound uh, political, instead of a government's taking care of it for us, because we've seen where that doesn't work in every country where it happens. Again, Dr. Gary Brester, any last thoughts? We've been talking here uh, just under an hour. Uh, we started off obviously talking about the uh, the bill of 50% uh, negotiated or mandated no negotiated cash trade. Uh, any last thoughts that maybe we, uh, points I didn't, uh, questions I didn't ask you or points you want to get across on that or just anything in general you would just like to, to share with uh, the cattlemen and women across Montana and the nation that are truly just desperate to, to find information? Well, uh, Lane, uh, uh, you, you as always are incredibly well prepared and have really hit all the sorts of things that, that I, others uh, that I've visited with have been, have been talking about and watching in the beef industry. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, uh, the, the message is, is that um, this will be short term. I mean, we, we you know, this, this will get fixed because that's what we do in this country. We fix things. Um, uh, a new experience on this case, but, uh, but, but we'll fix this. Um, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of, of when people say how bad things are, I'm reminded of my parents. My dad didn't have electricity till he was 12 and, and he lived near Laurel. I mean, this isn't, you know, this isn't exactly the boondocks and we, we forget how far we've come and, and how much resources we have to recover uh, from these things. In the 1900, early 1900s, that didn't happen. I'm reminded of my colleague, Vince Smith. Who, when someone said how bad things are, he said, yeah, except his mother lived in the subways, the tubes, uh, during the Blitz in London. He said, that, that, that doesn't really compare. So we have to take stock in, in all the good stuff we have. Um, yes, it, it, it's a very difficult time for producers. And, and uh, is, there, is there a silver bullet? No. But, you know, in this country, we've always been able to Say okay, well, let, let's fix this. Let's do as good as we can. Let's get through this, and and things things will re, will return to normal because we have a system of property rights. We have a system of law and order. We have a system, a, a justice system, uh, uh, that many other countries don't have. And so I'm, um, it's a pep talk. Fine, okay. I mean, we can all use one now and then. Uh, I, I think this. Uh, I, I think we're going to be fine. The the initial questions you had about. Um, changing these rules regarding um, cash negotiated settled cat, uh, cattle prices is an important issue. I don't think it's the 
primary issue that's that's causing angst in the industry or anything like that. I think it's an issue that, that we should look at. I think we should be careful um, instituting rules if we're not fully cognizant of the costs that that might impose because beef still needs to be price, as price competitive as possible to poultry and to pork and to also access our international markets. So I, I just, you know, I, I think caution is the right word. I think a lot of times something looks like the right thing to do um, and it feels like the right thing to do, but it might not be. And so uh, uh, I, think, I think we just need to be careful and not do things that are sort of a knee-jerk reaction because it seems right. Um, we need to think about longer-term consequences of intervening in any market. I, I, don't, I don't care what market, there's reasons to do it, um, but I think we need to be pretty careful. And I, I think it's easy for us consumers, you and me, Lane, uh, to not see the costs and the implications of uh, actions which we hope help, but ultimately might actually have a, a detrimental effect. Again, uh, Dr. Gary Brester, uh, Professor Emeritus at Montana State University's Ag Economics and Economics Department. Uh, again, thank you so much for, for taking time here today. Thank goodness it was raining because I know you probably would have been uh, working on a quilt or out on, out on no, the I'd, driving I'd range. I would have been on the golf course. You know that. It's okay to say that. That's exactly where I'd be if it wasn't raining today. <laughs> I, I had a milestone the other day. Uh, uh, we had some time and I went out with my buddy out to Livingston. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really like that course because it's long and wide. I never lost a golf ball. That's like the first time in my life. <laughs> like Lane, if I may, I had a, another milestone a couple of weeks ago at Riverside, uh, hole number six. I had a hole in one, uh, six iron, 165 yards. Um, I got a problem though. Yeah, I know. That's you my probably hole had in a one. witness. You had a witness? Yeah. Yes, Joel I didn't have a witness. out at Cottonwood. Yeah, so so I've, that's my third that's my third hole in one. I've never had a witness any time. So those are existential hole in ones. They don't even count. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could at least have a shot for yourself there. For but yeah, this this nice. was back back in college out at Cottonwood on par three. Yeah, so and I have a twenty nine hand in cribbage. I had that same year on New Year's Eve right behind wow. me. Wow. You're living large, man. I just need to win a shake a day at a bar now. <laughs> I, I, if you're going to do something like that, do a lottery. I mean, <laughs> you might as well do the state lottery and win, you know, 50 million or something. Well, again, Dr. Brester, uh, thank you so much for, for taking time and, and talking about the, these very complex and troubling issues that everyone in the industry is facing. And uh, again, uh, I hope one day you will have someone with you to witness a hole in one. <laughs> Except it gets expensive when you do it that way. But yeah. <laughs> well, again, Dr. So Gary, much, I appreciate, I appreciate the invitation lane very much. Well, again, thank you so much to Dr. Gary Brester for joining us here today. And for our friends watching and listening, thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for tuning into the lane cast with talk and ag lane Nordland. For more on lane, check out his Facebook page, lane Nordland ag broadcaster and Nordlandcommunications.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the lane cast on your Apple or Android devices. We look forward to joining you next time on the lane cast.